So in Second Peter chapter two, we're going to see the motivation behind um, that entire presentation by Peter in the first chapter. So, Mary, thank you for volunteering to be our co-host. Um, can you please read for us then Second Peter chapter two, from verse one to three? Okay, Second Peter chapter two, verse one to three. But there were also false prophets among the people even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Okay, so this is quite an intense opening. Thank you so much, Mary. Um, this is quite an intense opening to chapter two, right? So we've seen the reason why Peter is, is insisting that we hold on to the word of truth. He's saying that even in the old covenant, right? In the old covenant where there were very dire consequences for, for heresy or for false prophecy, you know that according to the law of Moses, um, if someone prophesied in the name of the Lord and what they said did not come to pass, they were supposed to be stoned to death. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament didn't give too, too much allowance for falsehood. And yet in that system, false prophets came up and false prophets didn't come up arbitrarily, right? The false prophets didn't necessarily come from outside of Israel, even though there were false prophets like Balaam that came from outside of Israel, but Balaam didn't, didn't minister to Israel as it were. He's saying here that there are false prophets that arose from among the people, right? So these are a people who are called. Remember that the calling is the foundation of your work of faith. It's the reason why you are in Christ is because God called you. And among the people that God called false prophets were there in the Old Testament. And he's saying that just as there were false prophets, because the Old Testament was only a shadow. The Old Testament, everything that happened in the Old Covenant was a prophecy. That's what it means when we say it was a shadow. It was pointing to something. The thing it was pointing to was the incarnation of Christ, right? And his work of atonement, his work of redemption for sin. That's everything that the Old Testament was pointing to. And it was pointing, of course, to his kingdom that would be established upon the earth after he has completed atonement for sin. So by its nature, the Old Testament was prophetic. However, in the New Testament, Christ has come, right? The thing that the Old Testament promised, that the Old Testament, that the Old Testament looked forward to, at least a great part of it, has been fulfilled in the person of Christ. So that what we now have in the New Testament is teaching much more than prophecy, right? It is or even though teaching is also classified as prophecy in the, in the New Testament, but the idea is the expounding of what God has. So that's why in the Old Testament, the, the issue is false prophecy. And in the New Testament, the issue is false teaching. Okay. Um, when I was reading these verses, as we get started, when I was reading these verses, the thing that... I would say stood out to me or bothered me. And I'm sure there are some things that stand out to you as well. 
And I would like to hear those maybe in the chat and as we discuss. But the thing that stood out to me was the question, what is the root cause of falsehood, right? Of deception. We said that false prophets came from among the people. And clearly falsehood is not something that arises from the New Testament. Falsehood is something that has existed even in the Old Testament, that a people who are saved by God, a people who have experienced the benevolence of God, perhaps even the fiery nature of God like they did in the Old Testament, falsehood still, still finds a way of germinating amongst those. It's necessary for us to answer that question of what is the root of this kind of radical departures from the truth because um, it affects all of us. Peter is warning us against the possibility of being carried away by destructive heresies. So it means that you and I must identify the thing in us that makes us prone to falsehood. Does that make sense? That makes us prone to deception. And it is by identifying it, identifying the root cause that we can then know how to avoid it, right? And that we can even administer cures to deception wherever it is that it has taken root in our hearts. So what do you think about my question? What, do you th what, what would you say? And the answer is actually in these first three verses. But what would you say is the root of deception? What is it that makes us prone to deception? What is it that that makes falsehood a possibility despite, despite the investment of God in calling us and in releasing grace over us? What do you think? Um, well, mm -hmm. I'm going to try to merge personal experience with some of these scriptures taught. So I think uh, there's a popular Bible passage that talks about the people having itchy ears, and then because they have itchy ears, God will give them over to false teachers. Um, from experience, I found out that um, when we have uh, when we have lost, uh, uh, you know, this lost, especially this very uneasy lost in our hearts, mm. we give way. We give way to falsehood. Um, mm. This this even shows this even shows in normal. Let's say. In our day-to-day -day life when it comes to our finances the major reason why we fall for scams and fraudsters is because there is a certain level of greed and unhealthy lust inside of us and that mm. is usually what these scammers will exploit you know to begin to sell yeah. us pipe dreams and shadows yeah so that's it for me yeah that's an excellent answer sami yeah, and Mary also writes in the chat, the keyword there, right, is covetousness. That, that this is the weakness of man. This is a weakness that you and I have that makes us vulnerable, right, to falsehood. And that's how the Ten Commandments concluded. You shall not desire or you shall not covet the thing that is not yours, the thing that belongs to your neighbor, whether it is your neighbor's wife or it is your neighbor's life. <laughs> you know, these days we have Instagram and we have WhatsApp status. And then somebody posts a video and, they are, and the video they posted becomes the object of your desire. You know, Paul in his writings, he said that 
you know, he thought he was an excellent keeper of the law in his in his Pharisaic days when he was a Pharisee. He thought he was an excellent keeper of the law until he got to the 10th commandment that says, do not desire. And then he realized that it is impossible for any man to be perfect according to the standard of the law. So covetousness is the open door that Satan exploits, right? In order to bring falsehood and deception into our lives. And I really love the example that Sammy used with um, Ponzi schemes, right? Ponzi schemes and any kind of financial fraud thrives on on the lust of men for more so that if you're going to avoid deception you will need to master your loss you will need to master your lot your your loss right you need to you need to be the master of your desires you need to be the one directing your feelings directing your wants directing your desires and your appetites and not your appetites mastering you directing you and determining what you do so never forget covetousness is the root right of deception satan appeals to self right he appeals to everything related to self and i've used that word self <laughs> because self itself is the root of covetousness I hope I'm not um, confusing you. It's not my intention to confuse you. Covetousness is the root of deception and self is the root of covetousness. You see, and it has different expressions. If you go to 1 John chapter 2, John says, love not the world, right? Not the things that are in the world. For he who loves the world, the love of the father, is not in him. And then he begins to tell, tell us about the things that are in the world. He says, the loss of the eyes. I see something and I want it. And you may not realize that that's why you want it. You want it because you saw it. Then he talks about the loss of the flesh. My body is, is dictating desires and is demanding for those desires to be met. Even if it means breaking the laws of God, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, right? Um, the need to have everything that puts me in good standing or even above everybody else. You see, Jesus warns us strictly about covetousness, right? If you remember in Mark chapter 8, I believe, um, verse 38, and of course, the other gospels have their own presentation of it. But in Mark chapter 8, um, the Bible says from verse 34 that when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, this is the curriculum of discipleship. I, I don't want to say true discipleship because anytime we say true discipleship, it's just um, our way of appealing to the fact that there is a false one. But in God's sight, there's discipleship. Anything that's not discipleship is not discipleship. So discipleship, this is a curriculum of it. The first agenda is let him deny himself. When you have believed in Christ and you come under the training of Christ, the first thing that Christ does is teaching you how to deny yourself. The second thing is teaching you how to take up your cross. And the third thing, is teaching you how to follow. This is the length and breadth of discipleship. 
they are vast islands in these three points, but it's the length and breadth of discipleship. And you see, if you look at that first point, let him deny himself. If I ask you, what does it mean, right? By deny yourself. You might think that it means um, you need to, you know, deny yourself of some things, right? Like maybe you need to stop eating ice cream or you need to stop watching certain things. And a lot of Christians have built up a lot of religious piety around the things that we have been able to deny. I don't know if you remember the Pharisee who came into the temple and began to pray to God. And his presentation to God was that I fast twice a week. And Jesus made it clear that he was not impressed with that prayer. He was saying, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this, my brother, this tax collector. I don't extort people. I've denied myself of pleasures just to please you. This was the same gospel that the elder brother, the second lost son in the story of the prodigal son, the elder brother who was at home. This was the same attitude. This was the same story that he brought to the table. I've been serving you all these years. You know, I've denied the things that were rightfully mine just to serve you. That's not discipleship. Jesus is not saying that you need to inflict wounds on yourself because you don't need Christianity to practice self-denial, right? Many religious systems, many occultic systems are built on the concept of self-denial. What Jesus is asking you to do is, is radically different from self-denial, is radically more, um, more intense than self-denial. Jesus says, deny yourself. Deny, he's not saying deny yourself something. No, he's saying deny yourself. What he's, do, what he's saying is that he's inviting you to an exchanged life. You see, when Jesus came on the earth, there's a, there's a certain life he could have lived. He was perfect. He didn't need to suffer. He didn't need to die. And he could have lived that life. But you see, he denied himself. He denied his own ambition. And he made the ambition of the father, his own ambition. So that even if he didn't have material wealth, it was not a problem. Even if he was born in a manger, it was not a problem because he had denied himself. And it was because he did that, that he was able to procure salvation. And after you have believed in Christ, you are invited to also deny yourself, to, to, to acknowledge that the only reason I have a life, the only reason I can look forward to a future is because Jesus gave everything for me. So I also exchange my life. So it's not that I'm denying myself things. No, it's that I've exchanged my life. So I let go of, of my rights. You know, you have your rights. You have the right to answer anybody that, <laughs> that, 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 that talks to you carelessly. You know, you have the right to an ambition, of course. You have the right to comfort. You have the right to your very life. You can decide, I don't want to die for this thing and you walk away. But the first stop on the curriculum of discipleship is learning to deny yourself. You see, everything that God does in us, in us beginning from salvation is aimed at obliterating self. Yes, yes. You see, the reason why salvation is by grace alone is that, is that that process excludes the self 
the self-sufficient person. I don't know if you've heard that quote, that you are enough. I can tell you that you are not enough. And if you truly believe and live out that quote, you are going to miss out on salvation because the salvation was designed in such a way that the self-sufficient will never taste it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. It's only when I arrive at the place of poverty of spirit, when I recognize that I cannot help myself and I need Jesus. That's when I touch his grace. Yes, I'm, I gave that example, the example of salvation to say that everything that God does with us is after the fall, is targeted at destroying self so that it does not become the root of covetousness, which becomes the root of deception. You see, even marriage, <laughs> marriage is an arrangement for destroying self because, you know, you know, as a single person, you you you've you've learned to have a life right you've you've learned to organize your life you know when you sleep you know when you eat you know what you eat you know what you don't eat you know you know what you tolerate you know what you don't if it's necessary for you to develop that rhythm right and that posture for you to be um, a successful single but then you now come into a union i can assure you that as long as you hold on to any element of self, the union will not work. And that is why we have the breakup of marriages, even in the church. And it's almost much higher in the church than outside the church, actually, because it's not so much that you have not been saved, is that you need to be invited into the curriculum of discipleship, which is learning to let go of self learning to humble yourself. It's not about me anymore. And marriage is one of the arrangements. So just in case you really want to marry, just be aware that it's an arrangement to make self die. And if you're not ready for it, then don't desire it because that's God's intention with marriage on earth. Another example is ministry. You know, ministry, <laughs> if God really calls you to do ministry and he shows you what he wants you to do, you're going to realize that you cannot do it. And so the, every time that you successfully prosecute ministry, it will be by the strength of God. It will be by the grace of God. It will be by the ability that he supplies. And so even the act of ministering is, is, is a setup to make self die. Whether it is family, God is going to set you in a family that you probably don't like. That is most likely not perfect. I've been looking. I've not found a perfect family yet. All of that arrangement is to obliterate self. Because self was the root of the fall. Yes. You see, when Satan came to Eve and gave his presentation, her only consideration, her only consideration was what the fruit could do for her. It could, it could make her wise. It could, it could make her like God. It was just about what, what can it do for me? Eve did not know, and I'm not blaming her. She did not know that an entire race was depending on her choice. Just like you and I are not aware that <laughs> the purposes of God are hanging on our obedience. Right? Eve did not know that a fruit 
that she was going to eat for herself was going to implicate her children after her. And so it is that principle that God has been working to dismantle because as long as that principle is not there in a person's life, deception becomes impossible. Okay, I went a bit further actually than I intended to in this opening um, part, but I just wanted to show us the progression, right? That the root of deception, like we said, we said is covetousness, loss. And where does covetousness come from? It comes from self. So my question to us then is, if, if self is this thing, you know, that God wants to destroy, what, what happened? You know, what, like, where did self come from? What is self? Isn't it God who made it? How did it become corrupted? What is self? Because you and I are called to, to deny self. To deny it. To exchange it for a different life. The life that Jesus has for us. So how did self come about? Where did self come from in us? Does my question make sense? Yeah, it's a very valid question. Okay. Is self not um, a product of free will? That's a perfect answer. That's a perfect answer. You see, there are many iterations of creation, right? Of man that God could have explored. And not just creation of man, but creation of even angelic beings. But you see, the iteration that he chose in his infinite wisdom was the iteration of, of a free-willing man. And for that to be possible, God gave you a personality. By that, I mean he gave you a soul. And it's in your soul that you have the ability to feel, to think. And those two things put together is what eventually makes you able to choose. And so God did not make you the final version of yourself. He made you the seed version of yourself so that through your choosing, you can become what he made you to be. And the process of becoming is going to make you the kind of creature he wants. If he, if he makes you, if he, if he makes you what he wants, then you don't have the process of becoming. And in that state, you are vulnerable. In fact, that is what happened to Adam that Adam was born a mature man and he didn't grow into the kind of rank that he had in the spirit, the rank of the firstborn of creation that he had in the spirit. And so he handed over all of that rank to the devil, as we're going to see, right? That the angels cannot even bring a railing accusation against Satan because Adam handed over the rank of the earth to him. Friends, God wants us to grow into our destiny and when i say our destiny i don't mean some like a state of life where you have all the money you've ever wished for if that is included thank god for that but when i say destiny i mean the very thing that he had in mind when he formed you yes yes he he began with you as a baby but his intention was that by your choosing by your choosing by your choosing you will become the person that he created you to be and we call that personality right? And you can see that just like fingerprints are different, there are no two exactly similar personalities. The, the closest word we have to this is to say 
your individual temperament. You know, your individual temperament is a complex mixture of many things, right? It's a complex mixture of your of your gender, of your growing up, of, of just your specific personalized wiring. That level of personalization was intentional. Yes, God did not do copy and paste. <laughs> Despite what people think that that's how China had 1 billion people. No, God did not do copy and paste when he created you and I. There was an intentionality to it. So that there is a way that you are that even your twin cannot be and it's not and that's your personality that's the soul but you see what happened in the fall is that the deceiver satan turned that personality on itself because god's intention was that that personality he put in you you would direct it right you will be the master of it and that's what it means to choose if you choose right you are, you are mastering that personality because you might find that you have a kind of personality, for example, that is prone to moodiness. You know that it's not a sin that you have such a personality, you know, right? Because it's your personality. If you, you, you are prone to melancholy, I, I know I was like that. I know that you will not believe because of what I am today. And that's exactly the point, right? That God's intention it's not that you go with the flow. No. God's intention is that you master that personality and not and not let it master you. Because there's a reason he made you melancholic. There, there are certain things that you cannot achieve without being in a melancholic state of mind. Yes, there are many things you can't. And there's a reason he made several other people more choleric. Because there are many things you cannot achieve without a choleric state of heart and mind an ontological state not just a learned state but an ontological state but god's intention was not that any of those things would dominate you but that you would direct it so that i'm not supposed to put my temperament before god and say this is how i am <laughs> it, it's a it's a it's a mistake to put it very lightly Right, it's a mixture of the of the order of the pattern that God designed from the foundation of the world. God's intention was that I will master my body, I will master my personality and produce his glory. What happened in the fall is that Satan turned that personality into itself. And instead of I being the master of myself, myself became the master of me. The thing that I crave for became my master. That's the tyranny of self. You know that if you leave a newborn baby that is small and grown up, the baby would, would collect all toys, all gifts for itself. Every single, if you leave it to itself. And what it doesn't know at that age is that this is a tyranny. It's a control. And that's how self originated. The deceiver managed to turn the soul in on itself. So now... The average person, rather than stewarding their desires, the desires of self, okay, I have an ambition. I steward this ambition towards the glory of God. What rather happens is that our ambition is what <laughs> drives us instead. And you see, it's the elevation of self that is the root of sin itself. It's the, it's the root of pride. And pride was the first sin recorded. Remember, Satan, Lucifer, he said, I will 
I will, I will, I will. It was no longer about the reference point. It was no longer about the design from heaven. It was about the will of a person. He said, I will. God did not create your will for you to will it against him. He created your will so that you can use it for him. And the perfect example of that is Jesus in Gethsemane. He says, Jesus, when he was praying, said to the Father that, if it is in my will right now, I want to bypass this cup. But the reason I'm praying is that I want your will to be superimposed in my life. So at the end of the day, it was Jesus who willfully went to the cross. Because if he didn't want to go, the Father would not have forced him to the cross. So the reason God gave us a will is so that we can apply it towards the, towards the will of God himself and towards the glory of God. So that's the story of self. Self is not altogether bad. It was designed and fashioned by God himself. But it became corrupted by the fall. And it has become the platform, the entry point for deception. Okay, that's quite a lot or a bit. Do you have any thoughts or questions? Okay. Before we leave these first three verses, what I want us to see here is the tactics of falsehood or of the deceiver all right the tactics of the deceiver is very important for us to see it the first thing we see here in verse one he says that peter says there will be false teachers among you yes and how will they operate he says who will secretly bring in destructive heresies who will secretly bring in destructive heresies so the first tactic of satan is that he comes in privily. Now, what does it mean that Satan comes in secretly? What it means is that Satan uses the language that you understand in order to advance deception. And this is very important because if you understand this, then you're going to understand the primary weapon for, for delivering yourself from deception. You see, when Satan came to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, if you remember Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, you, you realize that he quoted scripture because he said, ah, you are, you are a man of scripture. You understand the scripture. So it is written. He will give his angels charge over you. That's what it means to say he comes secretly, privily. It means that he presents a truth, but presents it out of context, right? Out of its original habitat and then tries to make you a slave of one truth. You see, one of the things that inspired us to do 3C's Bible study, I don't know if you remember, um, but one of our favorite quotes was the, was a psalm. I think it's Psalm 119, verse 160-something, um, that says that the totality of your word is truth. Let me find it. Yes, Psalm 119, verse 160. You know that this Bible study, 3C's Bible study, stands for, who remembers? The first thing that 3C's Bible study stands for? Nobody. Well, the first C is completeness. Completeness. And this is the verse that inspires completeness. It says, the entirety of your word is truth. 
you want to find truth, truth is not a it's not a muscle of wisdom that was picked out and plucked out of context, plucked out of somewhere and planted. No, truth is the entirety of your word. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Yes. So one of the ways that Satan comes in privily or secretly is that he pitches truth against truth. And that's how he brings deception. I mean, look at the divisions in, in church life today, right? In our churches, all the denominations we have, and not just the fact that we have denominations, but there are bitter differences between some of these denominations. At the core of it is a misunderstanding, is a holding on to one pole of truth and insisting that everything else that is not this thing is false. That is the weapon of the deceiver. Yes. I mean, if I ask you, you can probably give examples, right, of poles of things that people hold on to. Right. Maybe you can think of some examples and share with us as you think about them. But I can give you a couple that I wrote down in my notes here. Right. The first one is um, it was a video I saw on someone's WhatsApp status. Well, I didn't watch the video. It was just um, a it was just a thumbnail of a YouTube video of someone who said that if you pray too much, it's a sign that you lack faith. I don't know if you've seen such a comment. Or you've seen such a thumbnail. <laughs> Praying too much is, and you know, you know that this, this, that statement was cooked from hell. It doesn't matter how sanctimonious the person saying it is saying it. The statement was cooked from hell because if you believe that statement, which is, which is the hope of the person who's making it, that you're going to believe the statement, and you're going to count your prayer life as an expression of faithlessness. <laughs> you're going to end up deceived. And the reason you're going to be deceived is not that you're not a Christian, is that you, you don't realize that the entirety of God's word is truth, the completeness of... Friends, the first weapon, let me just go straight to the point. The first weapon against deception is a commitment to the complete truth. Yes. To the complete truth. You see, there is a teaching of faith that tells us that if we, if we ask and we don't doubt, right, we will receive the things we ask for. That teaching is not contradicted by the teaching that says keep on asking, keep on seeking, because you know that that's in the original Greek. Those words ask, seek, knock were used in the present continuous by the same person who said, if you ask, believe, and you have it. it. says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. It doesn't contradict the scripture that says that Elijah was a, was a, was a man of like passions. He prayed effectively. You know, what makes Elijah's story interesting is that it was God who wanted to send rain. So you cannot claim that this was not the will of God. It was God who said to Elijah, go and show yourself to Ahab. It was God who said, I intend to send rain. And the man of God prayed seven times. And the Bible says he prayed effectively. What you're supposed to do is to bring those two truths together. And when you bring them together, you're going to find a third truth that unites them. Rather than holding on to one, to one pole. 
So that's one that's one example of, of one poll. Another example that I think is common, especially amongst us young people, is I, I found out that a lot of people struggle to reconcile the grace of God, right? The love of God with the discipline of God, right? You know, either we belong to the camp of daddy with the pamper, <laughs> you know, we know that, you know, God pampers. So anything that is, anything that sounds like not pampering is, is false to us. We unconsciously block it out because these people are religious. So some people just camp on pampering. And of course, of course, some people, unfortunately, just camp on discipline, right? It's what I'm saying, making sense. Oh, it does not apply to you. Making so much sense. <laughs> but you see, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus told us that there is a rest that is given and there's a rest that is found. Come unto me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. That rest is talking about um, the comfort right, the sense of security, the assurance that every believer is supposed to have in Christ. There's a powerful assurance in the love of God that you're supposed to have. You're supposed to come into the presence of God and rest, even if you just committed the sin. Yes, there's, there's, that's how large the grace of God is. Because the grace of God is, is made available because of that weakness. Yes, grace is what is supposed to obliterate that weakness. So the biggest mistake you can make is to depart from the presence of God like Cain because of your fault. Because it's in the presence of God that your, that your soul was meant to find rest. Yes, there is that rest. That rest, you don't work for it. You just come. It exists. It is, it is the pampering nature of God. It pampers his children. And you see, your, your Christian experience will be deficient if you don't know that God pampers. And he wants to pamper you. But your Christian experience will be also deficient if that is all you know, because a time will come when God will start calling you and say, come up higher. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. So yes, I've given you rest, but there's a calling. Remember, never forget this thing about faith, that there's a calling. And it's possible for you to enjoy all the benefits of faith and not scratch the surface of the calling. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for a meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest. This rest, you will find, you, you will press into God for it. Yes. You see, there is a rest that is given to you free of charge, but there's a mark of the high calling. So that's why Paul said, I don't hold the language of assurance. You see, it's not, it's not, this is the same Paul that preaches assurance. But he says, that's not my posture. I don't consider myself to have attained. But this one thing I do, I, I press on. When I wake up tomorrow, I press. And the reason I'm pressing is not because I'm pressing for favor or I doubt the favor of God. Do you see? So I need to be the kind of Christian that has the ability to reconcile two things and to find what is the third truth in between. It's my commitment to the complete truth that preserves me from deception. So that's what he says here, that 
they will secretly bring in deceptive heresies. See, when you listen, when you listen to false teaching, it sounds true, and it is 99% true, actually. Except that it always misses the thing that balances it out. If you hear some of the most eloquent preachers of a false grace in our generation, you will be mighty impressed. In fact, you might be moved in the spirit by their preaching. Ah. But if you travel long enough in that path, you realize that it is standing on one leg. It has no foundation. Down the line, Peter will talk about clouds without water. Promising so much, but no substance. Our first defense against deception is our commitment to the, to the complete truth. The solemn warning from, from Peter is that many, in verse 2, many will follow their destructive ways. This is another tactic. So you see, the first tactic of Satan is a subtle one. And when the subtle one doesn't, you know, Satan, Satan either works with you or he opposes you outright, right? Either he successfully infiltrates what you're doing and he just manages it, you know? The thing is just there. It's not... He's not fighting you, you're not fighting him, and there's peace. If that does not work, he he is left with no choice but to outright attack you. So either he tries to be your partner, or he tries to fight you, fight what you're doing. And here we see that either he comes in secretly, or he puts the anointing of popularity. It says many, many will follow. So friends, 100 million views on something it's not a validation of its verity. It's not a validation that it came from the throne of God. It's not a validation that you need to hear it. See, there, there are some videos you'll send to me, if you do it, that I will not watch. I'll ask you what is inside the video and why do you want me to watch it, but I will not watch it. And you might tell me, ah, this person is, is XYZ, XYZ, XYZ. <laughs> But you see, popularity is not, it's not the basis of truth. It's one of Satan's tactics. Am I saying that God will not give us popularity? No. Jesus had thousands following him. But you see, the thing with Jesus was that he knew that these thousands, <laughs> he, he left them and invested in the 12. He, he, he spoke to the thousands in parables. And he invested in the 12. And Christianity is what it is today because of the 12. We don't read that any of those 12 received mind-blowing miracles. The most we read is that Peter's mother-in-law was healed. That's the most that we read. And that Peter caught some fish, which he eventually abandoned fishing. Right? But we don't read that any of those disciples had a major miracle. But Jesus knew that the crowd was not his. In fact, sometimes he decided to test the crowd and the crowd just cut itself in half when he told them, you need to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And that was enough to spike them. The Bible says that many will follow their destructive ways. The crowd is not always right, friends. And it says because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. And I think all of us know this, right? I live in Europe, and because of the atrocities that the church has committed in the name of God, 
in the Middle Ages and in the years past, the way of truth is blasphemed in our generation. Okay, we will spend a lot of time on these three verses, so we need to move on. But any thoughts here before we move on? I don't want to leave us hanging on this, right? And I want to emphasize it again, that the first defense we have against deception is a commitment to the complete truth. And friends, you are now in our generation, 2,000 years after Christ, are in a more privileged position than the, than the people who first received this letter, right? I mean, think about them in their day. They didn't have a New Testament Bible. They didn't have apostolic interpretations, right? To, to compare even. In chapter three, Peter talks about Paul's letters, but that was all they had. And some of them were confused by Paul's letters, right? Um, Peter himself had his own texture of the faith that he presented. Like you can see that Peter's letters are not exactly like Paul's <laughs> as we've read them so far. This is that personality thing that we have been talking about, how God intends to pass a message, reveal a glory through a specific kind of personality. They didn't have YouTube. They didn't have Instagram shorts and TikTok. They didn't have Wikipedia. They didn't have all the wonderful websites that give us um, a great encyclopedia of knowledge. They had none of that. All they had was the activity of the Holy Spirit within them, right? The activity of the Holy Spirit within them and the writings of the apostles. But you and I, you and I have the entire Old Testament plus New, New Testament. We have thousands of years of biblical interpretation of examples of people who got it right, examples of people who missed it. You and I currently have blessed and anointed servants of God that continuously expound the scripture to us. And all God is asking us to do is to have a commitment to the whole truth, to the complete truth. We need to come to God and ask him, what is missing in my understanding of truth? You know, maybe you belong to the faith camp, you know, right? And in your understanding, you're supposed to speak to the mountain one time and it's supposed to disappear. And then you, you can count right now <laughs> five mountains that you have spoken to once or even 10 times and they appear to be standing <laughs> very firmly. And you're beginning to doubt, do I really have faith? The, the faith that we have, is it the same faith that was, that was passed down to us by these New Testament heroes? Is it the same faith that Peter walked in? Has it, has it been diluted too much beyond recovery? Has Jesus abandoned us and left us to ourselves to grow up in darkness? But the answer is search the scriptures. Look for, look for the completeness of truth. Because by the time you go to the book of Revelation, you, you, you'll find a bowel there where the, where the prayers of the saints are collected as incense. And several chapters later, you'll find when that incense is poured upon the earth, you'll see that there is a process. You'll see that there is a filling up that needs to happen sometimes for the power of God to be released mightily. And when you see it, you, you, you wake up, you get your loins and you will make investments in prayer. But you see, you will never do that 
until you are committed to the whole truth. And this is our defense from deception. Okay. I want to, let's read. Can you read? This is a long read. So please pay attention to um, every verse. We're not going to explain it. The reason we're not going to explain every verse is that the first three verses we have explained have summarized everything Peter is about to say. So Peter is now using colorful metaphoric language to present again the things that we have just said. And like we said at the beginning of our study of Peter, this part of the letter is very similar to the book of Jude. So a lot of things we've already touched on when we did the book of Jude as well. So please pay close attention. Let's read now from verse 4 to verse 17. Mary. Okay. From verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous lots who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels who are greater in power and mind do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Verse 12. Okay. Okay, let's let's pause here because I think that if, this is already a lot and just run some 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 commentary. Okay. What I want to highlight before I run any commentary is the second principle for overcoming deception. Very important. Please note the first one. All of us need a commitment to the complete truth. And I take it that if you're in this Bible study, that's the commitment that drives you. And I want to say that's the right commitment. Have the commitment to the complete truth, to reading every verse, to understanding different perspectives, and to trusting God to open your eyes. The second thing the second secret the second um step if you like to overcoming deception to preventing deception to avoiding it to recovering from it is found in verse 9 verse 9 says because from verse 4 to verse 8 he has he has contrasted the current state of the church with false teachers invading to the old testament right and he's like he has done like he did in first peter chapter 4 or chapter three, he's showing that what you're going through has been simulated before. There were unrighteous nations and the people who were righteous in those nations looked like very foolish people, right? It, it looked like foolishness to be righteous. In fact, people pitied you if you were righteous. Yes, I think that's a good way to put it. People pitied you if you were righteous because they didn't understand why it appeared that you were bringing unnecessary constraints 
and suffering to your lives. And this is epitomized by Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness, and by Lot, who was a righteous man, living in two different civilizations and dispensations. And the lesson was established that, that God knows. That's what verse 9 then comes to. That God knows how to deliver the ungodly out of temptations. I think that this principle is relevant to us wherever it is that we live. Because you see, as, as much as we try to expound the scriptures, what we are eventually giving you is general knowledge. The hope is that as we are speaking of these things in general terms, that the Holy Spirit will rise up in your spirit and begin to speak to you in specific terms, right? That can minister to your life, to your situation, exactly where you are. That's the hope. And verse 9 elucidates that hope. It says that the Lord knows how to deliver the ungodly out of temptation. Now, I don't know if you have had a friend in your life before or currently that knows something that nobody else knows. <laughs> this, this person knows how to connect the DSTV to a certain direction that will bring certain channels. This person knows how to mix cake, right? To produce a very specific flavor that nobody else knows how to do. Peter is saying that there's a specialty that God has when it comes to temptation, that God knows how to. Now, God doesn't only know the way out of temptation. He knows how to navigate that way. He knows it. it it's something that he has done over and over again. It's something that's part of his arsenal, that he's so good at it. And my question to us is, if you know that God knows how to deliver you from temptations, what is that supposed to make you do? What's that supposed to make you do? In my view, it's supposed to make you and I cultivate a habit of listening to God. I've said it before in our Bible study, and I'll say it again, that the most important skill you need as a believer is the capacity to hear to hear God, the ability to listen to him. Nobody is worth listening to who does not listen to God, who has not listened to God. Nobody will go far in their walk of holiness, in their walk in life who does not listen to God. The Bible says, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. So you see, the covetousness, friends, is in all of us. What we are supposed to do and what we are trying to do when we come to scriptures like this, you know, it's very easy for us to come to scriptures like this and paint this very foreign picture of false teachers. Oh, they are this set of very alien and very evil people called false teachers that, you know, they are so different from us. <laughs> no. And remember, I've also said in this Bible study that never assume that the word of God is talking to another person other than you when you come to it, right? You and I have the areas of our virtuousness. And even for some people, covetousness is dominating their lives. It's possible that, for example, as a, as a man, you, you, you find out that your eyes are the ones moving and looking at women <laughs> and not you controlling the eyes. Yes, it's very possible. The cure to such a condition right 
is that you need to go to the one who knows how and say, Lord, deliver me from this covetousness. Show me how, show me how. And you see, when you ask God to show you how, remember we talked about personality at the beginning. He's going to give you the great physician. He will give you a prescription that is very specific to your makeup, to your temperament, to how he designed you, to your calling, to everything. You know, some people talk about certain temptations. I don't know if that's happened to you before. Some people talk about certain temptations. And when you hear how intensely they are dealing with it, you ask yourself, is this the same <laughs> temptation that is nothing to me? Some people say that they don't shake hands with sisters, for example, at all. And then you ask yourself, so me now that shakes hands with sisters and even hugs them, you now realize that you've been shaking hands and hugging, but not one single lustful thought has come into your mind. Yet for another person, the Holy Spirit will not as much as have him shake hands. The Lord knows how to deliver the ungodly, sorry, the godly out of temptations. We're supposed to take our Bibles every day and sit down and listen to God. And say, Lord, you know, you know. You know how. Show me. And it is, it is business. We must admit ourselves to that clinic of the Holy Ghost. Because what I didn't explain to us before saying that is the consequences of covetousness, right? We've said that covetousness is the root of deception. And the first fruit of covetousness is enslavement. Because if you read how Peter is describing these people, they've lost it morally. By that, I mean that they've now become slaves of the very desires that they sought to manage in the first place. Remember, God created us to master our appetites. There's an animalistic nature in each of us, in all of us. But you see, the thing that makes us different from animals is mastery. So that if you see a man that lacks mastery, you see a woman that lacks mastery, that lacks self-control, you will notice that there's no difference between this person and animal. And it's God's desire that each of us will master that tendency in us to be unruly. But you see, when I give myself, if anyone gives themselves, to the lusts and the desire of the flesh, the first consequence of it is that they become a slave of those desires. They become enslaved to that nature. So that, and what enslaved means is that they cannot but indulge. So something that started as, you know, <laughs> I can tell you that 100%, and I don't have any statistics for this. I'm just saying most, if not all, of sexual vices began with the vice of pornography. When you start on that path of pornography, I can assure you that you don't know where it ends. You don't know. Because you're going to find out that there's nothing that's material that can fill a man's soul. But by consuming material stuff, you have opened up chambers of lust. And the thing that you started with will not be able to fill up the lust. And then you move on from pornography to same-sex pornography. You move on to animal pornography, to child pornography, 
<laughs> I know that what I'm saying might sound extreme, but I'm saying it because it's not extreme to me, right? I have, I have encountered people that have those, those issues. And it's not that they're not even Christians. It's not that they're not even Christians, no. It's because of the little open door. You know, that little, um, that little thing in your theology that permits pornography, that allows you to do it, right, with a free conscience. It opens the door. And when you persist in it, it leads you down a path. It is now your your animal animalistic nature. It's now your fleshly nature that's leading you. It's no longer you. That's the first judgment. That's the first judgment of covetousness. That the thing that I covet begins to control me. The second fruit of rebellion, sorry, the second fruit of covetousness is rebellion. Now, rebellion has many shades and many names in scripture, right? One of the names of rebellion is witchcraft, right? You know, that's manipulation. One of the names of rebellion is the pride of life. That's one of the names of rebellion. One of the names of rebellion in scripture is the hardening of the heart. So that a time comes when I've strayed so far from the truth that I begin to fight the truth. Right? Someone strays so far from the truth that they begin to attack the truth. They begin to attack God. And that's exactly where Western civilization has arrived. It didn't happen overnight. So it was a drifting away. It was a giving over to covetousness, becoming enslaved, and then said, I'm not enslaved. I was born like this, actually. Yes. That's the second fruit that is highlighted here. So this, this, these people that Paul or Peter is writing about, they are not strangers. They came from among them. They came from among them. You're going to see it at the end that they came from. So they were Christians. Now, I don't know whether you want to tell me, oh, Joshua, they were not really Christians. You know, they had never... <laughs> giving their life to Christ. You see, fortunately, you and I can't judge that. The only thing we know is that by all external marks, they were Christians that accepted Christ. They were baptized even. They were part of the church. But through drifting, they fell into an irrecoverable part. So that's what all of this is saying, right? Um, verse 10 says, especially those, so he says that in verse 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the ungodly right out of temptations you said this is the second principle never forget it the lord knows the lord knows it doesn't matter how deep you are or how difficult it looks the lord the lord has the template let us spend time listening to the lord you know many times we spend so much time listening to men so much time listening to mortals that we have a lot of information but no revelation. Well, you see, information can change your life. It is revelation that changes your life. And revelation, only God can work out revelation. So let us spend time listening to him. He knows. But he doesn't only know how to deliver the godly out of temptations. He knows how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. The first punishment of sin 
the first judgment of sin is that my heart becomes hardened towards it. I can no longer identify it as sin. The first consequence of sin is my acceptance of it. You know, when God is still interested in your case, you, you, you still feel guilty. Ah, but when the walkings of judgment begin, that sense of guilt will leave you. That's the first consequence of sin, my acceptance of it. And that's why whenever I find sin in, sin in my life, I'm not supposed to, you know, just overlook it. Ah, it's nothing. Imagine if, you know, you eat one day, two days, three days, you feel pressed, right? And you don't go to the toilet. You do it three days, four days, five days, you don't go to the toilet. <laughs> you know, there's, even though when you go to the toilet, it smells, there's a good reason why you need to go. Because you need to flush out rubbish from your system. And that's what repentance does for us. So, so <laughs> you and I, we need to repent every now and then. We need to say, God, there's lost in my soul. Where did it come from? Yes, where did it come from? There is, there is anger. There is anger in my soul. There is, there, is, there is jealousy in my spirit. Where did it come from? I'm beginning, I'm beginning to... I'm beginning to live based on eye service. I'm beginning to get my energy from the crowd and not from the secret place. What happened? What happened? Yes, that's the act of, <laughs> forgive my imagery, but that's the act of going to toilet. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a healthy practice. It's a healthy practice. So that we will escape the deception that is in the last days. So you can see in verse 10, it says that they are presumptuous and self-willed. I don't know how many of us will say that we are self-willed, but I know that I'm self-willed. You know what it means to be self-willed? It means that, Kai, your way is the way. Like, it's it's hard for people to tell you what to do. And you do it. <laughs> it has to be your way. Many of us are self-willed. I know that I'm self-willed. But you see, that's the thing that God wants us to submit to him because it's an offshoot of covetousness. It produces a pompous, presumptuous, daring self-will. I dare to violate God. I dare to move without his blessing. And we see that this problem of rebellion, you know, we've said rebellion has many names. That's what verse 11 says. This problem of rebellion is so serious that the angels of God do not attempt to operate by that principle. They don't attempt to operate by that principle. Verse 11 says, whereas angels who are greater in power and mind do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Now, Peter is using general language, but if you remember our study of Jude, Jude told us explicitly that the angel in question here, or at least the main character in question here, is Michael, right, who contended with Satan for the body of Moses. And he says, even Michael did not bring a reviling accusation. He did not rebel against Satan in that sense. Because Satan was operating with Adamic authority in that scenario. Instead, he said, the Lord rebuke you. The point is not to say that you shouldn't rebuke Satan. Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The point is to say that rebellion should not be a principle by which you operate. Not with God 
and not with men. If you find rebellion in your heart, repent of it. If I find rebel rebellion in my heart, I, I, I resist my self-will and I say I'm wrong and I repent. Because the, the more tender I am in my soul, the more humble I am in my soul, my ability to listen, to be corrected, is what is going to preserve my soul from deception. So those are the two principles that we're going to look at tonight. And I think it makes sense to stop at verse 11. Those are the two principles, right? We must have a commitment to the whole truth. It's a preservative. Yes, and we must spend time listening to the Lord who knows and asking him to show us, to deliver our souls. Friends, there is no end to what God wants to give you and I. God's problem with us is not blessing. No, his problem with us is not blessing. His problem with us is what we will become because of the blessing. The Bible says that he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In fact, that's how Second Peter began. Remember that according to his divine power, he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's just that he gave it to us in Christ. It's domiciled in the heavens so that through obedience, we come into it. Through faith and through obedience, we come into those riches. God's problem is not to bless us. God's problem is not to increase us. God's problem is not to put his power upon us. The question is, what kind of person are we going to become when he does it? Right. And I want us to, to pray tonight and say, Lord, help my heart. That's the prayer point that we'll take as we close the Bible study. And say, Lord, help my heart. Cure me of covetousness. Jesus said, beware of covetousness. A man's life, a man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Bring me, Lord, to the place where I can count everything as dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Bring me to the place where I'm truly satisfied with you and you alone, where it is your presence that fills me where it is your presence that is enough for me. Oh, empty my heart of covetousness. Empty my heart of covetousness. Wherever it is that it is rearing up his head, wherever there is a quiet dissatisfaction that is brimming, that is slowly leading me on a path of iniquity, cleanse my heart.